All right, well, good evening and welcome back. Uh, I'm Mike Morris, I'm uh, your associate pastor here. And if you're with us on live stream uh, right now, we're delighted that you are, and uh, we're grateful that you chose to join us. So welcome back to our spring midweek series, uh, Songs of the Messiah. I'm gonna keep plugging the graphic, because Kyle, <laughs> every one that he's done, I just, he just keeps getting better and better at this. So I'm really uh, so pleased that he created something that really captures the beauty of of the stories we've seen in the book of Psalms. So we're finding Jesus there, right? So, so far we've covered Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 34. Tonight we're going to be in Psalm 40. We have two more left to go after tonight. Uh, one next week, Psalm 45. So there's your reading assignment, Psalm 45. And then we're going to skip a week because it's VBS week here that week. Uh, so And it's going to own the building for, for the whole week. Uh, so we will not be meeting that Wednesday, and we'll come back. I believe the date is June 28th. It's the last Wednesday in June, and we will turn to really one of the preeminent Messianic Psalms, number, well, Psalm 118. So as we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you that you do uh, hear us when we praise you. Father, it is, it is a joy and God, we look forward to the, we don't even know how long, Lord, we, we, we're going to praise you in all of eternity, and, and we, will, we will just fall at your feet, and we will sing with the saints of every age and every place, and we will exalt you. God, we look forward to that. Lord, haste the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the time to meet together around your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you'd be our guide, our teacher through it, that you would give us the wisdom and understanding we need to, to know what it is you want us to know from this psalm. Uh, thank you for the time to prepare. Thank you for the opportunity to share. And God, I pray that you would be glorified uh, in, in all that happens here, always. We love you. We praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. And amen. All right, so remember our uh, target verse. I wouldn't say theme verse. You can, you're welcome to memorize that, or at least the last part. Uh, the Greeks were at, uh, worshiping at the feast. They came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. He could well have taken them to this psalm. <laughs> he had it, I'm certain. And this is a place where, where he could have taken them to, to see Christ, as any of these that we have looked at in this series. Uh, you can. And so now I admit it's easier on the side of Calvary looking back, right, to see him in some of these passages. But uh, today we have the benefit of, of doing that. And so that's our goal in life, though, is to help people see Jesus. So in the word, we can help them see him. And in us, we can help. We can live a life that that truly and authentically reflects him to the world. And he is very evident in this marvelous book. So as I said, we'll, we're going to cover some background material each week. Uh, tonight, I wanted to discuss an element within the book, another element. We've, we've looked at some, Songs of Ascent. We've looked at uh, a number of things, uh, the, the Messianic Torah pairs and things of that nature. There are books within the book, right? We learned that on really, I think, the first night, that your English translations probably say... After Psalm 41, if you've already got your finger in Psalm 40, just flip over to the end of Psalm 41 or the beginning of Psalm 42, and you probably will see something like says Book 2, maybe in Roman numerals, Book 2. That's the beginning of the second 
section of the book of Psalms. Uh, so this gives us an outline of the book within the book. And I found it to be very, very helpful. Now, scholars' variations, evaluations vary slightly. The, not the numbering. Uh, I've excluded one and two for the reasons that I mentioned when we talked about Psalm 1 and 2. They really kind of stand apart. If you were to include them into a book, obviously it would be book one. But uh, the way we see the content of these makes a lot of sense when you look at the content of the Psalms within those groupings. Uh, this particular um, outline uh, is credited to Dr. O. Palmer Robertson. Confrontation. When you look to see, book, book one is written entirely by David. And it's, very, it's got a lot of confrontation with enemies. It's got a lot of, of uh, warfare and things of that nature. Uh, with Absalom in the early part, the single-digit psalms in this passage, in, in this book, book, book one. It's driven, really, from a narrative sense, it's driven by the conflict between the almighty creator, God, and the adversary. God has purposed from eternity to redeem for himself a people, right? That's the, that's the point of what God's doing. He's freed from iniquity. Uh, the, the people are freed from iniquity. They're saved by the work of God's Savior, the Messiah. You see him introduced in Psalm 2, who was born of the nation Israel from the line of David. And as David writes his first book, what you see is David's the focus uh, of the Psalms in this passage, in book one, focus on the confrontation between David, the ancestor of the Messiah, the, the, the one who uh, the Messiah would come from his line, David's greater son, we would say, about Jesus, as he confronts the enemies who are opposing the work of God and seek to establish, David is now seeking to establish God's kingdom of righteousness and peace. It is a, the, the narrative of this passage as you go Psalm to Psalm to Psalm, one to 41, uh, has, a, has a sizable amount of conflict within it. Tonight, we're almost at the end of it. And as you see, Psalm book 42, or book 2, beginning with Psalm 42 through 72, no longer is David speaking. It's the sons of Korah, and there's like seven psalms of praise in a row, and you get the sense in communication that after that constant conflict of book one, now the focus changes to a celebration of that kingship, the kingship of God and, and of his Messiah and the communication of that kingship to the other nations. The, the collection is anchored uh, in 61 through 64 as the messianic king speaks. In 65 through 68, affirming the reign of the king. There's less confrontation and more dialogue, particularly with other nations outside of Israel within that shorter book two. Now book three couldn't be more different than the first two. It take, the, book, the book of Psalms takes this unexpected turn in Psalm 73. From the establishment of the, of the Davidic kingdom, despite opposition from enemies and throughout, you know, the extension of the communication to those kingdoms outside of Israel throughout the nations. Now the nation of Israel is attacked, overwhelmed by their enemies. The focus changes from an individual. Really, I mean, the, the, the dominant theme of the previous you know, 60, 70 uh, Psalms is the voice of an individual. Now it's a corporate perspective. You you see more of the nation, the nation's suffering. And probably the most striking is Psalm 89. But you, now speaking to God, you have cast up, and before this there is this affirmation of the, of the kingship of David, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed 
wait a minute, didn't, you, didn't he confirm the kingdom in the first book, in the second book? Yes, he did. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. 39 is so remarkable. You have defiled his crown in the dust. See, if you just reached into Psalms and plucked out 89 and read it, you would think there was no kingdom of the, of the Messiah or of David. But seeing it in its context, it begins to make sense, and you'll see why in just more in just a moment. You have breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. Sounds pretty bleak. Now, did, did God really abandon the covenant, renounce the covenant with his servant, defile his crown? Of course not. But if you were living in that time, that's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. You see, obviously, in the rest of the book that, that David remains uh, who he was in the kingship uh, that God had, had appointed for him. But as the nation begins to suffer, uh, it gets very, very difficult and very dark. Book 4, again, it turns a bit. It's 90 to, 90 to 106. Maturation from the rehearsal of the destruction and the exile of the nation. Again, the focus changes to the mis... mis you, you see the people begin to mature in the way uh, they have been chastened by exile into Assyria and Babylon. God has disciplined them, but he will raise them up. Uh, Robertson describes it this way. This book, this meaning book four within Psalms, represents a more mature perspective on the idea of a permanent dwelling place and a perpetual dynasty promised in the Davidic covenant, in which he was. He, it was promised in the Davidic covenant. Book four concentrates on this ancient reality that God himself. So where, where's the dwelling place? And if the nations have taken over and crushed Jerusalem, we have lost our dwelling place. No, God himself is your dwelling place. Yahweh is your eternal king, a perspective that has been fostered, I love this, by stretching the people's faith through their experience of the exile. Remember we've said before, you grow through adversity. Tony talked about it Sunday. You grow through adversity and suffering. David's dynasty will eventually be realized only through its perfected union with God's rule. You see so many psalms that speak almost interchangeably of the rule of Yahweh and the rule of Messiah King becoming one. It, it's beautiful in the way he creates it. Now, at the end, book 5, 107 to 150, a lengthy passage, there's over 40 in book 1 and, and, and 5, and then there are fewer in the middle, so it's almost like this <laughs> in terms of the count. Having moved from confrontation to communication to devastation through maturation, the story of the journey of God's people through the Psalms now finishes with this carefully constructed, it may not look like it, but it is, collection of 44 Psalms with a, a focus characterized by the dominant word, What? What's, if, you, if you said, what's the one word that really blows you away in, in this end of the book of Psalms, what would it be? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is so thoroughly involved in all of the books. The book, it's, there's one, 111 to 117 is this grouping of hallelujah psalms, a messianic Torah pair, uh, Torah pair, 118, 119. The songs of ascent that we talked about last week is in this block uh, that emphasized Jerusalem as Zion, the dwelling place of God. And the finale, that burst of fireworks at the end, 146 to 150, concludes with the last verse of the entire book of Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's a great, great finish to this wonderful book. 
Now tonight, though, we're going to turn to the, uh, the 40th Psalm, which is very near, if you, if you remember that outline, right, it's very near the end of book 40, or book 1, which means the idea of confrontation and conflict is beginning to come to a close. This is one of the handful of Psalms, really just a few, fewer than 10, I would, I would say, which is considered messianic by virtually every scholar who even says that there is such a thing as a messianic Psalm. 2, 110, 118, 40, 22, 8, 16. There, there are only fewer than 10 that are well attributed you know, to this type of genre, if you will. Now, by both content and New Testament reference, this psalm has this clear, clear focus on Jesus. And we're going to examine the psalm in two parts. It, it breaks down into two parts very naturally. Verses 1 through 10 are a hymn of thanksgiving. Verses 11 through 17 are a lament. If you look at that, you would, you would go, well, what in the world? Why, why that way? Why, what would you expect to see? If you're going to find a, a, a sandwiched hymn, a sandwiched psalm like that, that's got both thanksgiving and element, which do you think should come first? A lament. Because it's going to be followed by, it was, life was awful, and then the Lord showed up, and now things are great. Right? You would expect that order, but in this psalm, it's reversed. Thanksgiving first, lament second. We're going to jump in at verse 1. So before we do, though, uh, let me go back to Psalms 37 through 39. Again, again, again. I, I, I'm guilty of it myself, so I'll just confess my own sin. Too many times, too many times, I have reached into the book of Psalms as if it were a bag of just these discrete chapters, and I can pull out any one I want. Yeah, well, I mean, you're going to be blessed if you just read any psalm. But if you read them in order and in context, in the construct in which they appear in the canon, it's better. Why? Let me give you an example. Psalm 37, verse 7, says, Be still, but now they're David's psalms. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm, the very next psalm, 38, 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Psalm 39, the very next one, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now you look at Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, and David declares that that patient waiting has been answered. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard me. But 37, 38, and 39 is him saying, I'm waiting, Lord. I'm waiting. For whom am I waiting? I'm waiting for the Lord. And Psalm 40 shows up. Here's what he says. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. And this is a great song choice, Derek, if you're in the room or you're hearing me. Uh, out, of the, out of the miry bog, the miry clay, that word is translated many ways in different translations, but that's pretty good, the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, the language of this waited patiently uh, is considered by a lot of scholars to just be too passive. It's really much more intense, apparently, in Hebrew than, than this. It's, one translator tried to capture that by saying, I waited. I intensely waited for the Lord. That's the idea. I, 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 there have been times where I have been at the window or at the door, right? And so have you. And a loved one is away at night, and you're waiting for them to come home. 
and you're waiting for this to see the headlights come up the road or you're waiting to hear the door open or something like that, right? And you know that intensity, that little low-level low anxiety, like, are they going to, when are they going to get here? Why aren't they here yet? That's kind of what he's feeling here. I waited patiently and God showed up. It's, it's the one, it's, it's that, it's that, it's been a long trip and I want to see them again and I'm waiting to see them and I am anxious about it. That's, I'm intensely waiting. And here's what the Lord does. David needed the Lord to show up. <laughs> you write, four, you write three, three psalms in a row saying, I'm waiting, God, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. You're, you're probably going to be writing, yeah, and he showed up in, verse four, in chapter 40. And that's exactly what he does. Look, look at the verbs he uses in this passage. He inclined to me. Let me show you what that looks like. Ready? If you have a young child, and they come up to you and they want your attention, and you want to really pay attention to them, and you want them to know you're paying attention to them, what do you do? You bend down and you incline to them. You look them in the eye. Maybe you go down on a knee and you look at them face to face, right? He inclined to me. He didn't do this. Yeah, yeah, what is it? This is the love of God as a, as a parent, as a father, reaching down, listening as a parent would to a child, as you have heard your children, right? He heard my cry. The literal translation would be, he turned his ear to me. I get that. Why? Because I'm at the point now where if you come up to me in a noisy environment and you're talking to me, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to take one of my ears I'm going to point it right at you like, why don't you just get a hearing aid, Mike? Because I don't need them all the time. But I mean, if there's a noisy environment and I want to really hear what you're saying, I'm going to point my ear right. He heard my cry. He turned towards me to hear what I had to say. God wants to make sure that the one speaking is clearly heard. That's the thought. He drew me up. Ever been in a hole and had somebody kind of come pull you out of it? They're drawing you up from the pit of destruction. Now, there, again, a lot of translations here. Slimy pit, <laughs> horrible pit, miry bog, pit of despair, miry clay. You kind of get the picture, right? There was a time in Jeremiah's life where he was thrown by his enemies into this mud-filled cistern with no water in it, and it says he sank into the mud. If there was an ad, you know, and running in the local paper for profit wanted, you know, I think that's going to really diminish the ad responses if you get thrown in a cistern full of mud, and that's where you find yourself. That's what happened here. This image of a bog or a swamp. Has anybody ever read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Thank you, Larry. Yeah, some of you have, right? Yeah, raise your hand proudly. Yes, it's a wonderful book. You ought to read it. If you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to read it. When Christian leaves the city of destruction and heads to the celestial city, he meets evangelist, goes through the, the wicket gate, as uh, it's said, has a scroll, and then the first place he goes that is a hazard, or the first place he goes that's dangerous, in the Old English, as Bunyan wrote it, was called the Slough of Despond. English uh, adaptations of it, modernizing the text a little bit, call it the Pit of Despair. And you're familiar with the way it's an, it's an allegory, right? So 
Do Christians ever find themselves in the pit of despair? Oh, yeah. Now, in the book, he says, Christian falls in, he's floundering around, he, he can't get to shore, as it were, to the, to the solid ground, and he calls out for help, and a helper in the book, a helper comes and says, well, how'd you get in there? I, went, I, I wasn't watching where I was going, and I walked right into it. Said, That's how it happens, right? And he said, there are steps under the mud. You just, you got to find them with your feet. He walks around, moves around a little bit. Oh, he says, we have spent 20,000 buckets of good admonitions or something like that and pouring it into this muddy land and it doesn't heal it. For every Christian, there's the chance of ending up in a place like this in the pit of despair. Only by God's help do we ever get out, right? He set my feet on a rock. He pulls us up, sets my feet on a rock, a sturdy, safe place. There is all the difference in the world between a pit filled with mud and a chunk of granite that you're standing on. You know what I mean? Where a person can really securely stand, walk with confident steps. He put a new song in my mouth. I love that. This is, that's a common phrase. It's used a lot. If you just like search for that in a, in a Bible search engine, you'll find quite a number of returns. Common phrase in Psalms, it's used once in Isaiah and twice in the New Testament. This is a great one right here. Psalm, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Now, if, you're not, if you don't remember what Revelation, what's going on in Revelation 5, it's God's throne room, and it's just a, a praise service, a worship service in the throne room of God. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall... They, did, did you notice that? They shall reign. They who? The ones that he pulled out of every tribe and language and people and nation and made him a kingdom and priest to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Hmm. I thought Jesus was going to reign on the earth. He is. We're going to reign together. Whoa. Yeah. And here, I love that they sang a new song. I don't know what those songs are. Not this side of heaven. But someday we will, right? The result of God's deliverance is that many are going to see and fear and trust in the Lord. And now we see this illusion in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Sounds just like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. I could, I could talk for the rest of eternity and never say everything that could be said about how good God is. Trusting in God is the path. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That's the path to blessing. Can I say something to you? Trusting in the proud, the arrogant, those who pursue lies as if they were the truth, who go astray from the path of righteousness, is like living in the express lane to destruction. When I read this and I began to think about it, you know, I, I, will, I will, at great risk, Tony, so you, you may be like missing an associate pastor after, the, after tonight. I thought of politics. I'm not going to say whose politics. It doesn't matter. It all... <laughs> If you think 
that the way to being blessed of God is to follow after people who say they are the answer to the world's problems. They're not the answer. That's the most ancient lie there is, that people can fix themselves. That we know what's best and right, that we are wise, that we're not the problem. How's that working out for humanity over the last millennia? Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud or the arrogant, to those who go astray after a lie. If you see someone chasing after a lie, do not follow them. You'll end up in the same place they do. They will tell you that only... We can do this. We are, not, we are not the problem. We are the solution. That's not just false thinking. That's lethally false thinking. That kind of thinking will lead you to death and destruction. Let me tell you the real truth. I recommend to you the book by J. Anybody ever heard of G.K. Chesterton? Oh, hallelujah. Yeah, great writer. Um, English. He, he's, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and in the version that I have, at least, he was, the foreword is written by Philip Yancey. And Yancey recalls, when the London Times requested writers submit essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton answered with this letter, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Perfect. What's wrong with the world? I'm what's wrong with the world. We're all what's wrong with the world. None of us are the solution. <laughs> Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. The best answer yet to what's wrong with the world is the answer we are. And if any other human being says they're the answer, you know they're lying. Our hope is in God, not man. The Lord's wondrous works in our past, look at this. He, he, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, even though I could never come to the end of it. Yet they are more that can be told. Two things he mentions. His wondrous deeds and your thoughts, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. We, we get the wondrous works in our past. In fact, there are some psalms that are not as long as Psalm 119, but they're really, really long, towards the end, and they are rehearsing the, either the sins of the, of the people of Israel or the blessings of God that have come upon the people of Israel, and they're quite lengthy. It's like your history lesson over and over. Uh, the Hebrew word, but, but that's the wondrous works in the past, and his thoughts about us are in the future, your thoughts toward us. The Hebrew word there is... Mahashabah, Mahashabah. And it means plans. It means a series of steps set out to accomplish a goal or objective. That's what the Lord's thoughts are toward us. He's moving us toward his purposes, toward purposes that we can only barely understand, if at all. We, and, but we can rest on the truth that they are both good and glorious. I don't know what they are other than what I would read in Scripture about how this all ends, right? But I do know that his thoughts toward us 
are good. None can compare with him. I will proclaim and tell of them, David writes, yet they are more than can be told. It's rightly said, isn't it, that no one can compare to the Lord. We, we preach and we teach and we write and we sing and we don't even scratch the surface of what can be said about our God and the wonders of his love. Now, the next passage is the one that makes Psalm 40 messianic. In verse six, verses 6 through 8, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me, and, and this is the ESV, an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. And I, then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. What a fascinating passage. That has puzzled, those little three short verses have puzzled Bible students for, for centuries. They're written by David, but it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It doesn't sound like it would come from David. But it did. Verse 6, given the law of God regarding the, the requirement for sacrifices and offerings, which was clear in the Levitical law, and that, the, 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 that David, among all kings, right, made sure that they were observed, yes. And, and he says, you, haven't, you have not delighted in them. But that's what you told us to do. Look at the, at the beginning of 6 and the end of 8. Raises a question, doesn't it? What delights God? What is it that causes him delight? Sacrifice and offering? Or one who will do his will? Hmm. Let's go on. It seems contradictory that David would even say that, but unless there's a deeper truth here, but of course there is a deeper truth here. The word, the, 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 the contrast to the Levitical law, the sacrifices and offerings, is this righteous one who comes. You have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. The, the literal translation is, ears you have dug for me. You could use the word pierced, which has led some scholars to think that this is the, the ritual of, of, a, of a bondservant deciding to stay with a master and having their ear pierced by an all into the, into the, uh, you know, the, 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 jam, the door jam, if you will, into, into wood. But it's plural, ears. And with the ear standing as a part for the whole of the person, we begin to see what it's really saying here. God is providing for himself a savior king. Now, early on it would be David, but we know it didn't end with David in his day, but ultimately David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Hamilton makes this observation at this point. I want to see this. His point in Psalm 40, verse 6, is that Yahweh wants obedience, not sacrifice. What is it that we see that in Psalm 15? For it is better to obey than... Oh, I kept these animals, Saul says, because we wanted to keep them in sacrifice to you, Lord. What pleases the Lord, obedience or sacrifice? Keith Green wrote a song about that. If you haven't heard it, I commend it to you. Sacrifice makes provision for those unsuccessful at obedience. I get it. That's all of us. Obedience is Yahweh's first choice. Sacrifice is provided for those who try to obey and fail. David's statement that Yahweh dug him an ear means that Yahweh has enabled David to hear his word and obey. We see that at the end. Now we go back to 8, 6, 8. 6 through 8, pardon me. Then I said, 
Behold, I have come. Again, is that David? It doesn't seem to resonate as if it were David. I think this is a clear time where he's writing prophetically, as we've seen in these other Messianic Psalms. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Now, what scroll? The law, I suppose. It, it's unclear. We don't know exactly what that reference might be. It, it's the law of, of, of God as, we, as he had it at that time. He overreaches, if you will, and what he says about himself. Uh, to, in, in that act, he clearly points to his Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, the one still to come, who truly came because he was called by the Father. And he was prophesied from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus said it himself, Luke 24, this is what we looked at on the very first night of this series. Then he said to them, the apostles, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament written about me must be fulfilled. He was the one, now back, written about in the scroll of the book. All of that. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I, I saw once, a, it was a replica, but it was the replica of the Great Scroll of Isaiah, 66 chapters long. And it was something on the order of like me to Larry. I mean, this thing was long, really long. Scrolled up. This, all of that points to Christ. That's it. I, so it, you should read verse 8 as if it were the words of Christ. I know David delighted to do his will too. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. David very imperfectly <laughs> fit, fit that description. Jesus fits it perfectly. Perfectly fulfills the desire of, of uh, the Lord to, to have his will done. Your law is within my heart. Here's the thing. He is a righteous Savior, King, Messiah, and he follows the will of his Father, what enables, what empowers the law, his word, the Torah, is within his heart. It's not a book on a shelf to Christ or to David, but it's certainly not to Jesus. He says, your law, O oh God, is within my heart. That's what makes this messianic. God doesn't delight in sacrifices and offerings that are now, hear me, that's footstomp, that are disconnected from obedience and submission. If you just offered physical sacrifices and then lived as you wished, right, was that be pleasing to God? No, it's not about the sacrifice. The sacrifice is a medium, if you will, to get to obedience and submission Instead, what delights the heart of the Father is a person who comes before him and says, I, del I delight, Father, to, to walk in your way, to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. He's powered by a heart filled <laughs> with the overflowing, to overflowing with his word. The only one who ever did that, obviously, perfectly was Jesus. Now, we see the author of Hebrews reach back to Psalm 40 to help explain the futility of that Old Testament sacrificial system and the absolute necessity of the work of Messiah. I quoted at length in two slides because you have to. Here it is. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can cover them for a season, right? Every year you had to keep coming back and doing that. You can't, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, 
He said, and then he turns to Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body. Now, interestingly, he uses the word body, which is the Septuagint. It's not ear, it's body. But again, the ear stood as a whole, as a part of the whole for the body. A body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will of God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. Here's the back to the author of Hebrews now. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the sacrificial Levitical order, in order to establish the second, his own, the covenant by grace and his own blood. By that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He didn't come to give the sacrifices of the Levitical law. He came to give the sacrifices of himself. And it delighted the Father. And he came to do his will. This New Testament passage gives the complete sense of the intent of the messianic prophecy that we saw in Psalm 40. Verses 6 through 8. Through the voice of David, right, the Holy Spirit magnified the person and the work of Christ as that perfect sacrifice, the one who willingly came to fulfill the law and purchase people for, his God, for God by his flawless life and atoning death. Jesus did away with the old covenant of law and established the second and final covenant of grace, and he paid for it with his own blood. He, he set aside the first in order to establish the second. Church, we've got to get that. We've got to get that. I remember when Tony preached it. We, we, this is something we must nail down in our own theology. This is something we have to understand. The world would want to turn you back. Even the, the recipients of the book of Hebrews would have been, if they could have been, turned back towards Judaism, thinking that I, that's how I'm going to please God. No. We need to understand this truth. No longer do we live by the ritual patterns of the law that can never take away sin. Instead, we live ready for this by grace alone. Say it with me, through faith alone, in Christ alone, understood through the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, the five solas of the Reformation. That's where our theology rests, is in those truths, not ritual sacrifice. Let's go on to verse 9. Back to Psalm 40. There we go. So what does a God-honoring person do who's filled with the law of God? What do they do? Well, they, they, tell the, they tell the glad news. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips. I haven't kept quiet. As you know, O Lord. This sounds a lot more like David. Verse 10, I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Someone who's been this greatly blessed, right, has a story to tell. He's got, he has, and we all do, he has a, a glad news of deliverance to tell to people. Faithfulness and salvation and steadfast love and like David and like Jesus too. We are witnesses to the goodness and the glory of God. I, I began to think about this. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, said this, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
not known as a paragon of virtue, Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't appear in Hebrews 11, right, in the hall of faith. But after God, I will say, got a hold of him, this, this was his response. It seemed good to me to show it, to show the signs and the wonders of all that God, the most high God has done for me. Yeah. And if King Nebuchadnezzar can, can give praise to God and can tell the good news of, of deliverance and salvation and steadfast love, I think we can. <coughs> I think we can too. <coughs> Now, we turn to the lament. Weird, but that's how it is. I, don't, I can't. We'll talk about why maybe and try to understand that a little bit better in just a moment. David has anxiously waited for the Lord, and finally the Lord's answered his call. Three, three psalms later, he's answered his call. Blessing him, puts a new song in his mouth to sing praise to God, witness to his goodness. But as soon as he sings that praise him, right, he turns around and he begins to cry out and lament again. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. I'm confident you're not going to give up on me now. I, you just showed up. You've blessed me. I know it, and I know you're not going to restrain your mercy. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. But, but i got to tell you, Father, evil has, evils have encompassed me beyond number again. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Now... We ought to have great confidence too, shouldn't we? Yeah, of course we should. Does he fail us? No, he does not. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness, they are going to preserve me yet again. But I need you to show up. Look at verse 12. Look at what he says. He has experienced God's has said that, that covenant love, that steadfast love. And, but here he says, verse 12, he, he expresses two causes for the lamentation. Two. One's external, one's internal. Look at the first one. He's surrounded by evils. He doesn't exactly say what they are, but uh, it doesn't take long to, to, to pull out a, uh, a few examples from Scripture. It could have been the debacle of his son Absalom. could have been that. could have been the threat of, of uh, the servants of Saul. It could have been the threat from the Philistines. Others who would betray and over, seek to overthrow him as the king of Israel. There he was surrounded by evils beyond number and then he gets to the second one and he spends a little more time here as he should my iniquities have overtaken me there are enough people outside me that want to do me in and then he says then I have to deal with what is in my own heart and soul He confesses that before the Lord as he should, as we should, speaking of them as if they were pursuing him. My iniquities have overtaken me. It's like he's running for his life and iniquities are chasing him and they catch him. That's the sense here. And I cannot see. I'm blinded by all of the sin in my life. They are, if, if you want more on that, look at Psalm 51, by the way, if you want to see a, a repentant heart from David. So he says that his sins number more than the hair on his, hairs on his head. And as for that list, we know of a lot of several, you know, we know of several instances in Scripture. The affair with Bathsheba, uh, his murder of her husband Uriah, the numbering of Israel done against the Lord's will, all of that and a whole lot more that we surely don't know as much about. But it is definitely true that the evils of the world can try to surround us, and we certainly also have to deal 
with the iniquities and the sin in our own heart. He declares that as a result of both of those, he has no strength left. My heart fails me. Begs for the Lord to quickly deliver him from both his enemies and his sins. And, you know, his only hope in this lament, just as it was in the first part of the, of the psalm, the Thanksgiving hymn, who is his hope? God. Here, who's his hope? God. It's not David's own righteousness. Never is. But God's faithfulness to him. We see it in verses 13 through 15. Which, interestingly, are reproduced almost exactly as Psalm 70. Go check me out. <laughs> You'll find that it's true. David cries out to God here to turn back those who sought to harm him, right? who would be happy if David were overcome or defeated or even killed. We see it in verse 13 through 15. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Hurry up. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, we caught you. That's the sense here. Uh, and, and I'm not going to cover one of these uh, because they're not messianic, but there is a genre of psalms called imprecatory psalms where you're praying for the destruction of your enemies. There's a lot of people that just really struggle with those to the point of saying, one, one commentator I thought was a little bit, way well, a lot too bold, and he said, these simply are not the oracles of God. Really? I, I think they're in the canon of Scripture. <laughs> I would not... Presume to tell God, you screwed up and put these in the Bible. They shouldn't be in the Bible. This isn't quite as much as those, those ones that are calling for the destruction, but it does say, deliver me, hurry up and make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and disappointed. Let them be turned back. Let them be brought to dishonor. Let them be appalled, those sorts of things. He doesn't ask for their death, but he does ask for deliverance from them. That's for certain. And now he turns to consider the righteous as he finishes the lament if it's possible, right on a little bit more positive note, verses 16 and 17. May all who seek you, now he turns from the wicked to the righteous, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. What's, our, what's one of our calls we should resound throughout all of history with? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what he says. May those who love your salvation Say continually, great is the Lord. Verse 17, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord thinks about me. The Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You ever called out for God to hurry up? Y'all just got to be honest with yourselves. You don't have to be honest with me. You don't have to be honest with God. I have. Oh, yes, I have. And it's true. The Lord does take thought for his own. His thoughts are toward us. He inclines toward us. He turns his ear toward us to hear us. Not that he will instantly respond, but I, by, his, by the authority of God's word, I will stand here and tell you he will respond. He is our help and our deliverer. So, what do we learn about Jesus? You know, this is the question we end each one of these with. What do we learn about Jesus from Psalm 40? 
Well, number one, the Lord answers prayer, even if it's our task to patiently wait, <laughs> which we talked about. No one wants to wait, even if it might take a little longer than we want. The Lord answers prayer. Believers will praise the Lord. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, you remember Psalm 34 verse 1? Did it last week? I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. Oh, I'm praising Jesus in my heart. Okay. The scripture really puts a premium on speaking it, saying it, singing it. I'm not trying to be legalistic and say that's the only way, but I am saying that's, that, this, this is not an isolated incident where he says his praise will continually be in my mouth. There are times of quiet, and I get that, and I have them too, as you do, but I tell you what, there, there, it needs to be counterbalanced, amen, with times where we are singing and praising God with our voice. That new song that God wants to give us in our hearts. And I'm looking forward to, to learning the new songs in heaven. I think it's going to be awesome. David testifies that word to us here. Put Number three, put your trust in the Lord, not in the proud and arrogant, misguided people in the world who think they've got the answer or think they are the answer. I will not trust in horses. I will not trust in chariots. I will trust in the Lord my God. No one else. For Jesus is faithful. Our Salvation is secured. This is the messianic piece, six to eight. Our salvation is secured in Jesus Christ. Amen. Not even David, not, not even David, but David's greater son, that one that actually was spoken of in the scroll of the book, who came to do the Father's will perfectly, abolishing the covenant of law, establishing the covenant of grace. The last one is the lament. When your enemies and your sins, not necessarily on the same day, right? When your enemies can overwhelm you on one day and your sins can overwhelm you on the next, overwhelm you on the next. When your enemies and your sins overwhelm you, what do you do? What do you do? To quote Tony, crumple like a piece of paper? No, 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 no. You turn to God. You pray to Him for vindication. And then you turn in praise. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say, Great is the Lord. Turn to him. Turn to him. Don't be deluded and tricked by the people and the places and the things and the promises of the world. You turn to God and him alone. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. You are amazing. You're simply the best. God, there is no none, as the scripture says here tonight, Lord, none can compare to you. May our mouths be filled with your praises. May our hearts overflow with your word. And God, may we walk each day in the light of your grace until the day you take us home. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.